Please pray with me. Father above, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that we would learn to love your Son. Lord, fill us with delight in him. Amen. At Divinity School, one of the homiletics professors, that's code for preaching professors, one of the homiletics professors gave a certain sermon every single semester. It was a bowl, a glass bowl filled of scripture references, and they were all the hardest passages in the Bible. And you had to reach in your hand and draw one out and preach on one of those very difficult statements. I'm not certain if these verses from Matthew 10 made his bowl. I didn't draw them, so I don't know what was in the bottom. But I think that it's probably one of those passages that easily could have been there. Listen to these words again. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's passages like this that should prevent a person from ever saying Jesus was just a good moral teacher and nothing more. It's passages like this that should prevent people from saying, I appreciate Jesus' teachings, like I love the bit about do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but I don't feel the need to devote myself entirely to him, to give all of myself to him. This passage is one of those ones that should either force us to dismiss Jesus entirely or to give everything that we are to him, to bow the knee to him completely. Who is he that can so openly talk about people being worthy of him? If I were to stand up in front of you and say, you're not worthy of me, that would be the mark of a megalomaniac, a narcissist. Who is he to say so openly, you would not be worthy of me if this were true? Who is he to say that he's bringing a sword that will cut through and divide every single family? Who is he to say to us that we must be willing to bear shame, disgrace, physical pain, and even death for him, or else we're not worthy of him? Who is he to say that if we seek to preserve our lives when the going gets tough, when the cost of discipleship is too high, that we are not worthy of him and we will lose our life? These are either the statements of someone deluded or the statements of God himself in the flesh, the Lord to whom we owe everything. There are people who have the right to say certain things to us. A CPA can look at us and say, you must write this check, and I don't care what you would rather be doing with your money. They have the right to say that. A police officer has the right to say, I am going to lock your hands together and take you away with me. A surgeon has the right to say, I'm going to cut your leg open. 
There are people who have the right, by virtue of their authority, to say certain things to us that might not be palatable. But if somebody else were to stand up and say those exact same things, we would say, no way. We would walk away. If I ever say, let me cut your leg open, I promise, run. Some people have the right to say certain things to us by virtue of their authority. My point here is that Jesus is claiming authority over every single relationship you have. He's claiming authority over your own heart, your very life. He's claiming authority over how we seek to protect ourselves, how we seek to fulfill ourselves, how we seek to enrich ourselves, how we seek to actually satisfy ourselves. He's claiming authority over all of these aspects of our life. And again, this is either the statement of one deluded, or it's the statement that we must bend the knee to, one that we must bow to. As C.S. Lewis says, he did not leave us the option of patronizing him as merely a good teacher. He's demanding that every priority in our life be on him and for him. It's easy to file the sharp edges off of Christianity. It's easy to avoid things like this and basically pull Christianity down to this God loves you and wants you to be happy. He wants you to have your best possible life, to make it palatable, inviting to sort of try to avoid the negative reactions. It's easy to take Christianity and file those sharp edges off. But Jesus' statement here is all sharp edges. You can't file them off in the end. It's a sword that should cut right through each of us. It's a sword that would have cut through his disciples. It's all sharp edges. You, like me, and by the way, I think this is, last week I mentioned, uh, it was, I was wrong in who it was, is Gilbert Hyatt, a Scottish classicist who taught at Columbia, who said, if the Bible doesn't shock you and unnerve you, you're not actually paying attention. This is one of those passages that it, it's easy to run past, but what I want this morning is for us not to run past it, to sit under its gaze for a few moments. It, we might say, why did he say this, though? But like, why did he have to say this? I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible command us to love our families? To honor, honoring your parents is actually, it's in the Ten Commandments. Like, why? Well, I thought Jesus came to bring peace to the world. Isn't this harsh? It'd be easy to say, Jesus, this is just a bit extreme. <laughs> isn't, like, 80% devotion good enough? I mean, why all this talk of worthiness? Why all this all-or-nothing language? In a certain sense, we can offer a historical answer to those questions. And I think it's good to see this in its moment, in its context. Jesus knew his path is leading to the cross. He's sending out disciples on mission, and he knows exactly where this is leading. His path is leading to the cross. He knew the cost that would come to him. And he knew that that cost would come to his followers as well. We can place this in its historical moment and realize that Jesus is looking at specific people knowing that some of them would actually be killed, knowing that some of them would actually be rejected by their families. He's looking at specific people knowing these things would occur. 
And in that moment, he's not willing to sugarcoat it. He cares for them too much to pull a bait and switch, to say, it'll all be roses, oh, until you get killed for this. He's not willing to sugarcoat it. And so he speaks bluntly to them about the cost. His disciples needed to know what it might mean to follow him. And so he speaks honestly. He's preparing them for the very real probability that they will face great suffering for following Jesus. And Jesus is saying to them, just as a matter of openness and honesty, men and women, you can't follow me and think that it's going to be easy. Things are going to get really rocky, and some of you may even be killed with me. We can place this in its historical context and understand it from that lens. But as true as that answer is, it still doesn't answer the hardest questions of this passage. It's not just a warning that these side effects may come, because Jesus actually says to them, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. There's an intentionality behind his statement. I'm meaning to do this, he's saying. I'm intending to do this. It's not just, in other words, a side effect that the disciples need to be warned about. It's a statement of Jesus Christ's very intention. I came to do this, to cut through families and society and hearts with this sword. This is on purpose. In other words, even if we can take a bit of the pressure off this passage by saying Jesus is just being honest with his disciples about what may occur, there's still a lingering question there. Why then does he say, I intend to bring this sword? I intend to cut through. Before I answer that question, it's important to state out loud a basic principle of biblical interpretation. The basic principle goes like this. We should never make one passage of Scripture mean something in contradiction to another. We should never interpret one passage over against another. There are things in the Scriptures that are difficult to reconcile. There are tensions that are hard to grapple with, but there are not contradictions. This basic principle of biblical interpretation rests on the very simple truth that God is one. He is perfectly unified. There are no contradictions in God. And the Spirit of the Lord has inspired all of the Scriptures, which means they bear the mark of His own internal consistency. This is an important principle of scriptural interpretation, that because God is internally consistent, Scriptures are, and therefore we do not take one passage and interpret it in contradiction to another. In other words... This particular verse cannot be made to contradict the gospel. It cannot be made to contradict the command to honor our parents or to love our families. This particular passage cannot be made to contradict God's love for us. We need to understand it in light of all those things, in harmony with them. But back to the question, why does Jesus intend this division? Why did he say that he came to bring a sword. This is where the analogy of a surgeon, I think, is quite helpful. When a surgeon says, I intend to cut you open, we know it may be painful, but we don't doubt that it is in our best interests. We don't doubt that it will be for the sake of healing on the other side. 
We don't question the goodness of the person, even if we know the road will be difficult. Jesus says that he will bring a sword that cuts through our society, through our families, through our hearts themselves. But because the rest of the scriptures teach us of his love and tenderness and goodness, we can assume that this cutting will be like surgery for our own healing and for our own good. So we ask, what good would come of these divisions that he's talking about? What good would come of setting two members of a family against one another? What good would come between cutting between a person and their very life itself? What good would be in this division? And Jesus' answer in this passage is quite clear. You love someone else more than me. You love someone else more than me. There is surgery that needs to be done because you love someone else more than me. He says, because you do, I intend to perform surgery on you, on your society, on your family, on your very heart, if need be. Jesus is telling us that this division that he's causing, this cutting through, is very simply because we have higher priorities than him. It can be difficult for us to believe that loving someone or something else more than Jesus is really that big a deal. After all, we do it all day long, seemingly without consequences. We place a million things before Jesus and love them first, and we don't experience any dramatic bad thing happening in our life right away. And so it can be difficult to believe that it really is that big a deal. In a certain sense, if we were to go back to the analogy of the surgeon, it's, we're like people who look at the doctor saying, I must do this operation, saying, but it's not that big a deal. I've been like this for quite a long time. I don't feel any pain. Remember that principle of biblical interpretation. No passage gets to contradict each other. In other places in the Bible, we learn that our love for God is supposed to be carried out in love for neighbor. We're supposed to love our families. In other passages, James says this directly, we learn that if we don't love our neighbors, if we don't love our families, we will never know how to love God. My point in bringing those things up is that love for neighbor and family and self is good. Jesus is not telling us not to love our families. Love for family is of God himself. But he is making it clear that love for God must come first. And when it doesn't, surgery needs to be performed. The reality is, is that there is a love for family that is an idol. There is a love for family that is a replacement for love for God. There is a fixation on the happiness, the success, the well-being. There's a fixation on our hopes and dreams for our families that can end up supplanting God, taking his place, being in the place of Jesus in our lives. There can be a dream that we have for our own lives that may be good in and of itself, but it ends up becoming so powerful 
the thing that we turn to, the thing that our life revolves around, that we wake up years later realizing that it has become Jesus to us. It is the idol. It is the thing we love most. It is the thing that we long for. This whole thing, society, family, the heart itself, this whole thing cuts right to the depths of each one of our hearts. Because each one of us is walking around on any given day with a whole competing set of loves, a whole set of things that we long for, that we dream about, that we want. And there is so often that those things have risen above Jesus Christ in the order of our affections. They demand our time more. They captivate our thoughts. They, we gravitate towards them, and they are the thing that we're constantly seeking to fulfill and to bring to fruition. But Jesus says, no. If need be, I will cut through and cause division. If need be, I will perform surgery. If need be, I will cut all those other things away. Because in the end, the only thing that matters is do we love him most? He demands that we love him more than we love our own selves, our own reputations, our own success, our own pleasure. That is that sort of basic question that we must be confronted with on any given day. Would we rather have Jesus or would we rather have the day that we desire? On any given day, would we rather have Jesus or would we rather have the affection of people around us? And Jesus' statement cuts to the heart like a sword revealing each of us, demanding that we love him more than we love getting our needs met, demanding that we love him more than getting whatever we want for our future. His statement cuts to the heart, and he says that every priority must be relinquished. All of it. I must come first. I must come first. This is the heart of this passage. It is not smooth and palatable Christianity. It's all sharp edges. But Jesus is demanding, I must come first in your affections, and I'm willing to do, I'm intending to do whatever surgery is necessary on your heart to bring this about. Even cutting away things that are good. You see, that's the difficulty of this is how easy it is to place things that are good in and of themselves up into his position and how needing to learn to lose those things so that we might love him first becomes necessary for us. The reality is, is that we can learn to love God through the love of the things that he has given us. We see his goodness in the physical goodness that he gives us. It's not wrong to love food. We see his goodness in the relationships that he gives us. We learn about the love of the Father through the people around us who love us. Sons and daughters, fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, mentors. We learn to love through the good people that God has placed in our life. But each of these things that God has given us is designed to lead us towards love for him. And at the very end, if we say, no, I'll keep this lesser gift, that thing that was good 
can begin to become a cancer. That thing that was good can begin to become an idol. On the other side of learning to love him first, we discover a freedom in loving our friends and family members that we never thought possible. A freedom in enjoying God's gifts without guilt because love for him comes first. The point is is that these lesser loves are designed to lead us towards love for him. But on the other side, where love for him is the bedrock of our lives, we're set free to love those around us without any sort of reservations, any sort of hesitations. In this passage, Jesus is saying very simply, I'm coming to cut all that needs to be cut in your life so that you might learn to love me first, so that you might place me before everything else. We all know the emptiness of pursuing those good things when we're pursuing them as if they were God for us. How many times have you set out the day This is what I want to accomplish. And you go through all of the actions, and at the end, there's hollowness there. And you realize in hindsight, it's because I cared more about those things than I did about Jesus himself. Most of us know what it means to place other things in his place and be left empty in the end. Jesus loves us too much to leave us in that particular place. He knows us, and he will cut through to the heart so that we learn to love him first and foremost. The reality is is that he is the only place that life is found. This is the other thing that lies behind this passage and comes bursting out at the end, that life only comes from one place. Life cannot be found in other places. And so Jesus' willingness to cut may be painful, But it is painful for us, for our healing, for our life. He longs for those that he has redeemed to know the fullness of his love in his life. And he knows that by clinging on to lesser affections in place of him, we turn things that were meant to lead us to him into cancers in our own hearts. We turn things that were meant to bring us to the God of all good gifts into these little idols that cannot bring life. And he says, I long for you to have life, so I'm willing to cut those things away. I long for you to know my goodness, and so I demand that you love me first, that you love me before all things. He cuts, causing divisions in societies and families, even in our own hearts, that we might have life. He is a surgeon of masterful skill, using our own sin even, to remove false loves from us. You see, not all these cuts are ones that he causes. God does not do evil. But he is capable even of taking the ways that we cut and hurt ourselves and turning those cuts of injury and wounds into healing cuts. He can work with all that is in our life, and his goal is that we would love him first and foremost. If you find yourself this morning confronted by the fact that you simply do not love him as much as all that. In other words, if you find yourself like me, going, I want to love him first, 
But most of the time, I find myself loving a whole host of other things first. If you find yourself in that place and you say, by his own lips in this passage, then I am unworthy of him. If you find yourself there, know that he delights to gather the unworthy into his arms. Know that he delights to bring those who do not deserve him closer. In other words, confess your lack of love and return to the one who keeps loving even when we fail to. I think Peter's story is so helpful here because it's a literal playing out of this whole thing. For the love of his own life, he fell away in the end. But he was still restored. He was restored and he was brought back. And what did Jesus Christ say to him in that moment? Do you love me? In that moment, Peter was able to say, I do. I do now. I do. And so if you look at your own life and see their failure to love the Lord the way he ought to be loved, if you see in that your own unworthiness, do not despair. He delights to gather the unworthy into his arms. Return to him. Confess that and let him transform your heart so that it becomes a place of love. Amen.